sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the recent Helsinki Commission and their meeting on so-called Russian colonialism and sort of uh, pointing out the obvious uh, hypocrisy and absurdity of that. Also going to be talking about uh, the recent tragic slaughter of uh, African migrants and how that connects to European and U.S. imperialism and going to be discussing a new book about how capitalism has shifted to protect itself in the time since the coronavirus pandemic. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, after five months of ignoring the long-simmering internal conflict in Ukraine that preceded Russia's military action, the Associated Press finally brought it up in their reporting on Ukrainian forces withdrawing from the embattled Luhansk region and Russia advancing onto Donbass. Embedded deep in the article, it's finally admitted that, quote, Moscow-backed separatists in Donbass have battled Ukrainian forces since 2014 when they declared independence from Kiev after the Russian annexation of Ukraine's Crimea, end quote. Of course, there's no explanation as to why that civil war occurred other than the misleading claim of Russian annexation of Crimea. There's no mention of the preceding coup in 2014, no mention of John McCain or Victoria Nuland visiting the Ukrainian neo-Nazis to support them in carrying out the coup, none of that. But at least someone in the Western press has finally admitted that the Ukrainian army has been fighting against its own people in the Luhansk and Donbass regions since 2014, even if they won't outright call it a civil war that the coup they won't talk about spawned. But as I often contend, it's what isn't being said by U.S. media that is almost always far more important than what is said such as the fact that the Ministry of Justice in Ukraine has just succeeded in not only permanently banning the Communist Party of Ukraine, but a court in Lviv ruled that the KPU must turn over all of its assets, including buildings and funds, to the state. No U.S. media outlet is reporting this, of course. This comes from the Morning Star out of the U.K., which reports that the 8th Administrative Appeals Court in Ukraine ordered, quote, the activity of the Communist Party of Ukraine is prohibited. The property funds and other assets of the party, its regional, city, district organizations, primary centers, and other structural entities have been transferred to the state. And this followed a decree signed by Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky outlawing all political parties deemed to be pro-Russian on May 14th. The U.S. media didn't report that either, because how could the so-called leader of democracy and beacon of freedom of political expression in the alleged free world report that the leader they're sending billions of dollars in military and other support to in his plucky little fight against Russian tyrants is actually a fascist running a fascist government? 
The move to criminalize and seize the assets of the KPU disenfranchises 2.6 million Ukrainian voters, or 13 percent of the electorate who voted for the KPU in 2012, the last general election the party was allowed to run in. The years-long efforts by the U.S.-backed government in Ukraine to decommunize the country also targeted other political groups like the opposition platform for Life Party, Left Opposition, Union of Left Forces, Socialist Party of Ukraine, and other left-wing organizations. The government in Kiev even responded to the KPU's repeated calls for a peaceful negotiated solution to the civil war in the Donbass region as treasonous and redoubled their efforts to ban the party, which they finally succeeded in doing. Of course, no right-wing neo-Nazi organizations or parties have been scrutinized or outlawed in Ukraine by Zelensky or the Ukrainian courts because they're part of the government now with the blessing of the U.S. So where in Ukraine is the democracy that this war is supposed to be defending? Where's the freedom of the people of Donbass and Luhansk to determine their own destiny being protected in Ukraine when the government of Ukraine bans political opposition, expression and speech, along with the Russian language printed and spoken? What democracy is being defended when political parties call for peaceful negotiations to end a brutal eight-year civil war, but are accused of treason and have their assets seized instead? That's not democracy. That's not a democratic state. That's a fascist state. And that is what Ukraine is. That is what the U.S. is supporting with full knowledge of it and telling you that you must stand by Ukraine. And if the U.S. is supporting a fascist state like Ukraine, carrying out all of these undemocratic actions that U.S. media is not telling you about, what does that say about the kind of state that the U.S. actually is? Well, speaking of fascism... Today in 2016, Philando Castile, a young black man, was shot to death by a police officer after being pulled over in Falcon Heights, Minnesota. The officer had pulled Castile over under the pretext that his brake lights had gone out and had falsely suspected that Castile was the perpetrator in an armed robbery that had happened the previous week. When he was pulled over, Castile told the officer that he had a registered firearm in his pocket. Legally, Castile didn't have to tell the officer that he was even carrying a firearm that was legally registered to him. Despite repeatedly telling the officer that he was not reaching for his gun, the officer discharged and shot Castile to death. Body cam footage of the shooting of Jalen Walker was revealed just a few days ago. Another young black man stopped allegedly for yet another minor violation that honestly the DMV could just send a ticket in the mail for if they're that pressed to find people for busted taillights and such. But Walker was shot by Akron, Ohio police 60 times in a hail of over 90 bullets as he ran away from them. The police claim they saw a flash of light coming from Walker's car that they thought was gunfire. They thought he had a gun, they said. Stop for minor violation, get shot by the police. Legally own a gun, get shot by the police. No proof that you actually fired a gun, but run from the police, get shot by the police. 
protest another black man getting shot by the police, get arrested by the police, as 50 people did in Akron on the first night of protests after another mayor issued another stupid curfew designed to lock protesters against racist police terrorism up for protesting. There cannot still be questions about whether the U.S. is the largest racist fascist state in the world. Can there be? Follow Lukeman Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on. As they say, we are now happy to be joined by Dan Kabalik, an adjunct professor of international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law and the author of No More War, How the West Violates International Law by Using Humanitarian Intervention to Advance Economic and Strategic Interests. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, here recently, uh, there was a Commission on Security and Cooperation in Europe. And this is an organization that's funded by the U.S. Congress, also known by the name the Helsinki Commission, that held a virtual conference that called for the, quote, decolonizing of Russia. And uh, even that phraseology is pretty wild to me, sort of on its face, but particularly with that kind of uh, uh, accusation coming from the United States. And it's hard not to see this within the context of uh, U.S. imperialism's design on Russia as it continues to ramp up and sustain this proxy war with Russia in Ukraine. And so, Dan, help us understand uh, just what happened at this Helsinki Commission and what what do what does this body even really mean when it talks about decolonizing the Russian Federation? Yeah, well, it's an interesting conference. First of all, this is not the first time people have been calling for the decolonization of Russia. This has been an ongoing campaign, not only of this organization, but, but others. And they're, they're careful to say what they mean, because obviously on its face, what it seems to any rational person to mean when they go through the areas that they claim are colonized by Russia, meaning the Caucasus, Siberia, uh, Tatarstan, uh, and others, is that they would want to break up the Russian Federation. And uh, they do go out of their way to say, well, we're not necessarily saying that, but that's clearly what they are saying, right? I mean, this is what they, they can't otherwise explain what they really mean by this. They clearly want to break up the Russian Federation. They know that decolonizing is actually a now popular term, pretty a woke term, in fact that people use all the time. So they've latched on to this as a clever way, they think, uh, really to call for the destruction of, of Russia. And they go through how Russia and the Soviet Union, they focus a lot on the Soviet Union, uh, allegedly has oppressed all these uh, areas in the Russian Federation and oppressed minority uh, peoples, and that somehow, you know, we have to do something about this. Uh, though it was kind of funny because there was a question and answer period, and someone did say, "Well, yeah, well, well like, uh, what about Hawaii? You know, the U.S. and Hawaii. You know, what do you what do you think we should do about that?" And they were like, "Oh, that's different." And they hemmed and hawed. I mean, 
clearly they don't really call, care about decolonizing per se. What they really care about is doing something to destroy Russia. Yeah, and aside from that obvious hypocrisy uh, of the United States being involved in this effort to for for uh, Russia to decolonize anything, there is also the issue that the United States is arguably the still the largest empire, probably than the world has ever seen. I mean, when we're talking about just the number of military bases, the military presence that the United States has around the world, which are not, you know, there for benevolent reasons, as the U.S. government always claims, what Russia and the relations they have, which might be fraught, might not be uh, entirely beneficial to some regions in the Federation, I feel like pales in comparison to what the U.S. actually exists as, as the largest empire that the world has seen to date. And I just feel like that is just incredibly, I don't, I don't think hypocritical is even the right word, Dan. Yes, you're absolutely right. In fact, the U.S. has over 800 foreign military bases around the world on every inhabited continent. Uh, It has over 10 times more foreign military bases than all other countries in the world combined by a multiple of 10, right? So uh, Russia has the second most, and Aside from Syria, they they don't have any outside of the former Soviet Union. So they're all in countries very close to Russia, and they have a fraction of what the U.S. has. So, as you say, to call for Russia to decolonize when Russia, to the extent it is an empire, its empire is very tiny and limited to the area around its borders— is a joke when the U.S. again claims really dominance over the world, and it has to point it, be pointed out. By the way, you know David Vine does in his book about um, U.S. empires, uh, the U.S. empire, is that all these military bases uh, around the bases they are all serviced by brothels. You know, women are regularly abused, um, either you know forcibly or semi-forcibly through prostitution. This is actually standard, you know, a standard part of, of the military bases that the U.S. has. So, you know, again, to talk about others decolonizing when we have this incredible system of bases around the world is it's astonishing. And just to put it in, in, in another context, the Roman Empire at its height had 33 foreign military bases. Uh, Great Britain had 36. The U.S., again, has over 800. So, as you say, no empire in the world uh, has had this kind of reach. But, of course, ironically, the U.S. is the only empire uh, that refuses to call itself as such. Right. Well, calling it an empire, when you put it that way, it sounds bad, right? So instead, you have to uh, portray yourself to the world as a a, a city shining on a hill, a beacon for democracy and human rights, while doing the absolute opposite, both at home and abroad. And what you're laying down here, Dan, it's important context in history that the rank and file person in the United States is simply completely unaware of, not by their own fault, but because of 
the incessant and aggressive propaganda that comes not just from uh, corporate media platforms, but really from all uh, knowledge production institutions under this uh, a capitalist system. And, you know, you, you published a piece about just this issue in uh, a Rinko Tribune. And uh, you raise an interesting point about how in this Helsinki um, commission meeting, they sort of Erroneously, I think, uh, raise uh, like the Soviet Union and conflict. Well, first of all, they, they they talk about the supposed colonialism of the Soviet Union, which is just, you know, the, the, the complete opposite of what actually happened in terms of how the Soviet Union sort of dealt with uh, the different republics and the degree of independence that they had. But even beyond that, they, they do this popular thing, something that's very popular, particularly now in conflating the Soviet Union with the Russian Federation of today, which are two different countries under two different systems, although quite obviously their their histories and trajectories are intertwined. You know what I mean? And so the reason why that is even able to land, I think, is not only, again, because of the profound uh, sort of uh, uh, historical uh, illiteracy of the American people, but also the deep anti-communism that is so deeply ensconced in the United States, I would argue that it's almost an unofficial religion. And so it seems like there's a real utility there in not only skewing the real history of uh, uh, the Soviet Union, but basically raising the specter of the Soviet Union as a, a, a boogeyman kind of entity to justify uh, the current attacks on the Russian Federation, which is a, 30, a thoroughly capitalist uh, a nation at this point, Dan. Yeah. So as you say, there's a number of things to unpack there. One is that the Russia is not the Soviet Union, um, but it is easy to generate antipathy towards Russia by, by at least implying that it still is the Soviet Union somehow, or that Vladimir Putin is a communist, which I hear all the time. Uh, but but what it also does is ignore the role of the Soviet Union itself in actually helping decolonize the world. I mean, that's the other irony. While the U.S. after World War II spent all of its resources in trying to defend colonialism, right, defend, defend French's colonies, France's colonies in Southeast Asia, and other colonies throughout Africa, including apartheid in, in South Africa, Russia went out of its way to support liberation struggle, struggles trying to decolonize. And as I mentioned in the article, most famously, at least famously for people who paid attention, a lot of Americans don't know this, is that while the U.S. and Israel continued to support apartheid South Africa till the end, it was uh, the Soviet Union backing Cuban troops uh, that helped liberate South Africa from apartheid and, and liberate the frontline states uh, that the South African military was uh, intervening in. Again, this is little known history in the U.S., uh, but Nelson Mandela knew about it, you know, and uh, was very open about this. The first person he visited after he was released from jail was Fidel Castro in Havana, Cuba. Um, and the Cubans played this incredible role, uh, helping to uh, lead to the end of apartheid by defeating the South African military. But they couldn't have done that, in truth, without the backing of the Soviet Union. So, again, there's a huge irony here. But because people don't know this history, it's just very easy to conflate Russia with the Soviet Union and then say how bad they are. 
Yeah, and also on the question of colonialism, I mean, um, again, not even sort of speaking about the, the reality of the former Soviet republics, but also the support that the Soviet Union actually provided to different anti-colonial struggles throughout uh, what what some describe as the third world. And, and tell us some about that, Dan, because I feel like that that real history and the political substance in it, I think even further sheds light on, I mean, frankly, just how absurd this this notion of, you know, Russian colonialism even is. Yeah, again, I mean, the the Soviet Union was very supportive of uh, the Palestinians, of the PLO very supportive of the Sandinistas after they took power, and the U.S. began their contra, their counter-revolutionary war against Nicaragua. Of course, they supported Cuba after their liberation. They supported, of course, Vietnam in their li- attempt at liberation from France and then from the U.S., who intervened once France lost, and as, of course, I mentioned in, in Africa as well. Um, the Soviet Union supported uh, liberation struggles. And and, uh, these liberation struggles, in truth, probably would not have been successful, by and large, without the support from the Soviet Union, you know? And so consequently, what happened was, you know, when the UN was born, uh, there were relatively few countries who were part of the United Nations because you had so many colonies, right, that that were part of the UN is, uh, you know, really uh, is a sub- category of their colonial power, and that changed. Many, many countries joined the U.N. uh, in the 50s and 60s uh, because they were liberated from colonialism, and the Soviet Union uh, played a key role in in helping that anti-colonial movement along. Uh, And again, that's that's a part of history that that very few people know about. Of course, the other way they fought against brutal colonialism was by defeating Nazi Germany, which, of course, was attempting to bring the whole world under its control. Uh, and in fact, most honest historians believe those are the two huge contributions the Soviet Union made to world history. Yeah, definitely. I appreciate that. And it bears repeating just because, you know, if if what you are is a colonial force then supporting anti-colonial uh, efforts just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's probably not a great way to go about that. You know what I mean? And I also think you're correct from what you mentioned earlier, Dan, about how these frankly, these uh, these imperialists are trying to co-opt, uh, you know, radical language like decolonizing because it is popular. Sure. Um, there is kind of a, a bandwagon buzzword element to it, I think, like with a lot of things. But in truth, there's also a deep substantive history from revolutionaries and organizers like, you know, France Fanon and Walter Rodney and so many others that that really contribute to this important school of thought. And quite obviously, this is not at all um, the the orientation of the Helsinki Commission. I mean, it reminds me of that um, that commercial that the CIA put out and they had this, you know, Latin woman with the woman's liberation shirt that talked about how she's a mother with, um, you know, general anxiety and and so on and so forth, just obviously ticking these boxes, trying opportunistically to seize upon progressive sounding language to lull people to sleep to, you know, the 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 snares and and and, you know, uh, machinations of imperialism itself. We have to be aware of that and uh, uh, sort of include this sort of thing in our political education and in our organizing. But we're going to leave it there for now here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Dan Kavalik, so much for joining us today. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. 
by any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about a recent slaughter of African migrants and what that means for imperialism. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Tunde Asazua, the coordinator of the U.S. Out of Africa Network, a project of the Black Alliance for Peace. Tunde, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Tunde, recently we have seen some positively galling images of Moroccan security forces uh, that were trained and armed by the United States, mind you, uh, beating and slaughtering uh, uh, African migrants as these migrants were attempting to cross over uh, from Morocco to Europe through a, a place called Melilla, if I'm saying that correctly, which is actually a Spanish enclave in North Africa, one of two. So not a place that we we hear a lot about. And I feel like there's a lot that's bound up in this in terms of sort of the the fundamental uh, white supremacist character of imperialism, the role of NATO and all this as this also happened on the eve of the the NATO uh, summit in Madrid. And I was hoping you could help us understand not only uh, some of the details of what happened here, but how it's sort of connected to broader geopolitical dynamics. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think it's important to, to name that, uh, you know, this is a product of, like you said, right, um, white supremacist imperialism, right? And, and these types of massacres don't occur in a vacuum, right? Uh, you know, just uh, days after this massacre in Malila, you know, 100 migrants were discovered in San Antonio, Texas, right, trapped in a tractor trailer, without water, air conditioning, and over 50 have died um, from that, you know, particular incident, right? So, you know, there are ways that we can connect these happenings in different contexts throughout the world, right? And that, uh, and understand that they're a result of, you know, inhumane immigration policies and decades of, you know, in, uh, U.S. imperialist interventions in the case of the San Antonio, Texas example, uh, particularly in South and Central American countries, but then also, you know, U.S., NATO, War making across uh, uh, the continent, right? Um, you know, a lot of the, the migrants in um, uh, that were massacred in, in Morocco uh, were fleeing war-torn areas in places like, you know, Sudan and 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 and, um, and Libya and, and elsewhere, right? And and those are you know places that have, have been you know devastated by you know Western uh, or, or um, general imperialism, right? So I mean, I think it's under- important to understand that the cruelty. It was unleashed on the hundreds of African migrants, right, uh, uh, in, in those um, uh, in, in Morocco, uh, who were piled up like like lifeless objects. If you watch the videos that, that circulated on social media, uh, that were, and, and those migrants that were terrorized were uh, by Moroccan authorities, you know, um, uh, uh, is it, uh, is shocking, right? It, it, it's shocking to see those types of things. But I think you know we we understand, right, that. You know, like you said, this took place, you know, the uh, uh, just as the, there was that NATO summit. There was also at the same time or, or, uh, or, or around that same time, 
uh, the African Lion exercise that the AFRICOM called for and led, right? Uh, 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 military exercises in Morocco and a couple of other uh, uh, African countries with more than 7,500 troops from, from Western countries and African neo-colonies, right? And, and you know, it, soon after that, that military exercise, NATO nations, like you said, held a meeting in Spain without acknowledging the massacre. And I think we can we can point to uh, the need for Morocco to really show that they're a reliable partner to the, to the U.S. and to Europe, uh, and and so that is being one of the just uh, the, the driving factors for for this massacre, right? Like Morocco had all the incentives to you know act as as brutally as they did, um, and it had something to gain from from this, uh, and, and as it helped as it tries to booster is or bolster rather its privileged position as an ally of the European Union. But yeah, I mean, I think you know there are. Uh, tens of folks massacred. There was an initial count that said 37, but from what I hear, uh, um, it, it's much more than that uh, that, that were, were killed in this uh, incident in Morocco. And we can only really point to U.S., NATO, imperialism, and, and AFRICOM, which I mentioned earlier, have it, had its exercise as a product of, of NATO and, and that imperialism, right? Like, AFRICOM is a direct product of NATO through UCOM, the European Command, um, because, you know, it was UCOM that took responsibility for a number of African states at one point now AFRICOM does. So, I, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm just trying to say that it's, it's, it's connected to, to this, uh, you know, U.S. full-spectrum domination uh, that, that allowed for, for this, this tragedy, to, or this massacre, rather, to occur. And, you know, the, this full-spectrum domination that the U.S. is uh, engaging in through AFRICOM on the continent, it actually creates the situation uh, that people are, you know, find themselves in, uh, being forced to migrate from their homes to find safety, uh, and then they end up being uh, brutalized by another country that is also under the control of U.S. full spectrum domination through partnerships with NATO. So how, how does the, the actions or the presence of AFRICOM and NATO before it on the continent create these kinds of situations where there's so much uh, uh, instability, where people don't find safety where they are, and when they flee, they flee into even more danger at, at the hands of the same forces. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, full-spectrum dominance really means, you know, U.S. military control over land, sea, air, and space, right? Uh, and so that means, you know, they're protecting U.S. interests and investment in those uh, dimensions, right? And protecting really means guaranteeing the operational freedom, right, of, of, of you know, corporations, right? Like they're protecting U.S. interests and investment, which really means protecting corporate profits. And so I think, you know, when we talk about, you know, the, the, the immigration and the, the need or the forcing of, you know, folks to flee their, their homes, their, their, you know, places uh, of, 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 of residence uh, of, uh, in search of, of safety, in search of, of, of um, you know, more security, uh, and and and, and um, you know being being able to, to uh, live better lives with it uh, and and have better lives with their children, right? I think we have to look at you know this full spectrum dominance is, is really driving that. Um, you know in you know uh, uh, Walter Rodney's book, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, he talks about how you know NATO, which is a um, you know a, a force that they, they kind of 
uh, protects or, 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 or implements or, or allows for U.S. full-spectrum dominance. That you know, they, these uh, that NATO uh, basically utilizes the soil of, of the countries that folks are fleeing from for their militaristic ends. Right? That it allows you know colonial subjects who are fleeing you know places like South and Central America. If, if we're talking about you know the the uh, the uh, the folks who died in Texas, the, the immigrants who died in Texas, or you know Sudan or you know other parts of, of the uh, the African continent who who died, the, the migrants who who fled and died in, in Morocco. Like it, it basically allows those colonial subjects no control of the utilization of their soil, right? And that that's kind of what uh, um, you know Walter Rodney was speaking to, right? It, it it basically creates conditions in their countries that are untenable that. You not allow them to to live any uh, any sort of um, uh, uh, or, or be, uh, access any sort of meaningful opportunities, um, and and I think you know that that's what we have to point to, right? And and in, in BAP we say that we are in full uh, uh, solidarity to these to these African migrants and even uh, and the uh, migrants from South and Central America, right, who've been victims of you know this this white supremacy, and, and in, in the case of Morocco. In the case of Morocco, this brutal racist attack, right? And we think, you know, there obviously has to be a full independent investigation and indictment of the actions of Morocco's been in the U.S., but we also have to understand the, the root of the problem, right, which is imperialism, which is full spectrum dominance. And and we, we call for the end of, of, of AFRICOM and the end of NATO and, and you know, um, uh, and, and kind of the, really just the end of imperialism, right? Um, and so, you know, NATO has become... A, a huge axle in the wheel of, you know, the military-industrial complex, right? It includes more than 800 U.S. military bases around the world and, and uh, relationships with almost all African countries, all controlled by the U.S. empire for the purpose of full-spectrum dominance, which is really driven by, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the need for, for these corporations to accrue more profit. So, and, and that that's really what creates these untenable conditions. And so that, that's that's kind of what I want to speak to is, is the, the connection there is, and, and what drives folks to, to migrate, to, to leave the, their places of, um, you know, places of origin, right? Places where they where they know super well. Like I, I, I think, you know, if, if anything, they would prefer to stay where, where they grew up if, if the conditions were, were, were right, if they had access to, to jobs and, and the food and, and the education and really the, the human rights that they deserve. Um, but, you know, Imperialism does not allow allow for that. Definitely. And, and that's a really important point, Tunde. And, and you're right, because when we talk about this massacre, this attack on these African migrants, like you say, these are people who are fleeing conflicts in Sudan, South Sudan, Niger, Chad and places like this. And I feel like this really shows the human impact of imperialism, because I think sometimes when we use these words like uh, imperialism and, you know, uh, the fundamentally uh, sort of colonial nature of, you know, uh, uh, NATO and uh, uh, AFRICOM and these other imperialist institutions, I I think sometimes people see it as, you know, merely being pedantic or just spouting buzzwords. But no, we're talking about institutions and processes 
that have real life devastating impacts on flesh and blood human beings. So because of the contradictions wrought in uh, uh, these countries and many, many more by uh, uh, this uh, military imposition, by uh, exploitation of corporate entities and uh, things like this, by the, the neocolonial regimes in, in a lot of these countries, like you say, is precisely what pushes people to leave their countries of origin in the first place. And in the United States, you know, there's this trope, this cliche of people saying, oh, well, you know, you criticize the United States so much, but if the U.S. was so bad, why are all of these people are trying so hard to get here? And they, they think that that's some kind of gotcha question, when in reality, the question is clear. It's the U.S. and the West and these imperial institutions that make the conditions untenable for people and that forces these migrant flows and pushes them into situations like we see in Malia, where people are brutalized and killed for simply trying to uh, seek a better quality of life for themselves and their families. That was their crime. And this is the fate of so many uh, uh, migrants and refugees that we see all across the earth that are impacted by these same dynamics. And so what it says to me, Tunde, is that if we're serious about uh, uh, really uh, addressing this, then we can't rely on the same institutions, the same leaders, and frankly, the same class element that created these conditions to actually solve the problem. But in truth, what we need is a principled anti-imperialist movement to continue to grow and develop and strengthen and build relationships across, you know, uh, uh, lines of uh, uh, land and borders and language and cultures and things like that to really strike a real blow at the uh, imperialist and the capitalist system that undergirds imperialism itself. Absolutely. That, that is exactly what we need. Um, we, we need, you know, that, that uh, you know, development of connections between, uh, you know, uh, movements that are, 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 you know, building bottom-up mass struggle uh, that is really informed by an understanding of, of, of uh, human rights that, that really focuses on, you know, those who uh, are, have been kind of forgotten, right? Like colonized people uh, uh, and, and, you know, understanding that it's really the, um, um, it, it, it's, it's through struggle that we'll, we'll really achieve uh, uh, those those rights and, and our, our liberation and the end of imperialism uh, through uh, you know the, those con- uh, the building of those connections. That's why you know in the U.S. out of Africa network, we're trying to develop relationships with organizations all over the African continent who are engaging in that that sort of struggle. They are you know fighting imperialism every day through their their work to to um, you know, build like a working class or, or, or poor and oppressed uh, mass centered uh, or, or mass uh, element of struggle, right? And so I, I think, you know, what you speak to is so important, right? The the fact that we need kind of an international uh, analysis and focus in, when it comes to our organizing work to, to defeat, you know, these, uh, these these monsters, right? That are, that won't even mention, you know, this, this massacre that took place the day before at their, you know, uh, like, uh, NATO conference and, and, and their, you know, uh, military exercise, that, 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 that's an afterthought to them. Um, and so, yeah, we absolutely need to be building relationships. And, and these are relationships that uh, uh, must be ba- based upon, like, actual work that we need to be, you know, organizing together and, and really struggling together and learning from one another as we, you know, uh, build against the system, as we re- work to understand what we're up against and, and really you know, understand what what it takes to fight back. So I, I completely agree. 
definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Day, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the state and dynamics of global capital uh, in the aftermath of the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by William I. Robinson, professor of sociology at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and author of the new book, Global Civil War, Capitalism Post-Pandemic. William, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. Absolutely. And, you know, William, I appreciate the analysis that you bring in your new book, Global Civil War, Capitalism Post-Pandemic, because I think it's important to sort of uh, uh, highlight how the capitalist system is uh, shifting and changing in the time since the onset of the coronavirus and how it it really is a, a global phenomenon that's having global impacts. And there's a lot to get into there. But to begin, I was hoping you could help us understand just what do you mean by global civil war? What sort of uh, frame of reference are you really coming from in this new piece? You know, and why do you think it's important to sort of have this kind of analysis of where things stand today? Sure. Well, the first thing is to take into account is capitalism. Is the global capitalism is in the deepest unprecedented crisis, the deepest crisis in its history, and it is throwing the vast majority of humanity into a crisis of survival. Uh, we can date the current crisis back to the financial collapse of 2008, but that crisis was never resolved. It intensified throughout the 2010s and then and then exploded uh, with the pandemic. But the mass, and, and let's remember it, global inequalities are simply unprecedented. One, many people already know this data. One percent of humanity controls about 52 percent of the world's wealth. Twenty percent of humanity, that small portion of humanity that can actually survive in this new global capitalist system, has 95 percent of the world's wealth. That means that 80 percent of the world's people People has only 5% of the world's wealth and faces desperate crisis for daily survival and uncertain futures. So in that context, a global revolt has been underway that's also unprecedented all, all over the world since 2008, and it's intensified ever since, even during and after the, um, pand- pa- 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 the, the, the pandemic. Um, so this capitalism faces this crisis of revolt from, from below. It faces a crisis of state legitimacy and capitalist uh, hegemony. And in response, the ruling groups around the world are intensifying a global police state, systems of transnational social control uh, and repression. So, you know, the, 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 the term global police state is, uh, sorry, global civil war is obviously a metaphor in the sense that there's not one army of the mass of the global working and popular classes from below, and then a global army from above fighting each other. But we are the, the global working and popular classes, the mass of struggling humanity, is facing off against what's an increasingly unified transnational uh, ruling class. 
in conflict, which is escalating everywhere. I want to add one other point here. Remember, going into the pandemic, in, in uh, right before the pandemic, in fall of 2019, we saw uprisings in countries all over the world, from Chile to Lebanon to Iraq to India to France to the United States to Haiti to Nigeria to South Africa to Colombia and Sudan, wherever we look for these mass uprisings in 2019. The pandemic comes along, there's a global lockdown, and momentarily people have to leave the streets. But then even within, even after the first few months of the pandemic, the revolt even intensifies during the pandemic in, in itself. And I show that uh, in the book. Of course, in the United States, we had the uprising when George Floyd was murdered, which brought 25 to 30 million people into the streets. But during those two years of the pandemic, the revolt only intensified, and it still is as we speak today. So in the face of this simply unprecedented, all-dimensional crisis of of global capitalism, there are struggles and conflicts all over the world are are heating up. So that's why I've titled the book in in this way. We're descending really into um, metaphorically what we can can consider a, a global civil war. And, you know, Professor, there's been a lot of talk over the past several decades with the rise of uh, automation uh, about the need for, you know, workers to defend their jobs against, you know, the rising uh, tech threat to uh, uh, employment, to their jobs. But that's not really how technology uh, has driven this uh, global uh, uh, class war that you talk about. What has the role of technology? technology really been uh, in uh, what you say turbocharging uh, this uh, a global capitalist uh, a conflict uh, that was even made worse by the pandemic? Yes, absolutely. There's several points we want to look at there. And of course, another big theme uh, of the book is the digital revolution now underway. There's a massive new round of restructuring and transformation of the global capital system, of global society, and of politics driven by these so-called fourth industrial revolution technologies that we're all familiar with. But what does this actually mean, this this, um, digital revolution? First of all, it's been opening up enormous new possibilities for uh, what I call the transnational capitalist class to, to, to make profit and to extend their reach and their control at the expense of the mass of people around the world, the mass of working people uh, around the world. So this digitalization is a, is a weapon of accumulation of capital and profit-making at the expense of working people. Now, that's, of course, in the United States, but again, this is all around the world. But And the second thing we want to um, see with this digital revolution is that it has tremendously enhanced the ability of the ruling groups of governments around the world in the face of the global revolt to uh, to uh, discipline uh, and to repress this global revolt, to extend these systems of social control uh, and repression. Basically, the digital technologies make possible this intensified global surveillance and global uh, uh, police state. Uh, the third thing we want to point out here is that the types of transformation and restructuring that's being driven by this digitalization is resulting in unprecedented intensifying what were already unprecedented global inequalities. I mentioned that, you know, previously the actual data, but it is also restructuring the nature of employment and how the economy works in such a way that we increasingly have mass under and unemployment in expansion of what I call surplus humanity, sectors of humanity, whole sweeps of humanity, several billions of people that are simply locked out 
And it is also restructuring work in such a way that increasingly the work that we do is precarious. It is what we can call on-demand labor. And all of this is resulting in social disintegration and a breakdown of political uh, authority. Uh, so, you know, these digital technologies, we haven't discussed that. Maybe we don't have time, but many listeners are sure are going to be familiar with all of these revolutionary digital uh, technologies. It has the potential tremendous potential for humanity under a very different social, economic, and political system. But under the system in which we live of global capitalism, it is really intensifying the crisis and, um, tr- and, and bringing about the transformations in the ways that I've just laid out. Yeah, I really appreciate how you broke that down, William, because it shows the real flesh and blood impacts of these global systems and of capitalism itself. And I really appreciate you highlighting how uh, so much of the technology that we have now under the right system and the right sort of state apparatus could be an incredible benefit to humanity. But as it stands now, um, these things are subject to the interest of capital and not just generating profit, but maximizing it. And therefore it has these detrimental impacts in uh, uh, further exacerbating these inequalities, as you point out. And I was hoping you could, uh, 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 say a little more about these inequalities that were already pretty incredible, frankly, uh, before the pandemic. But, you know, uh, you know, as we've been saying in the time since, it's sort of, you know, poured gasoline on an already raging inferno, which I think fuels the kind of uh, internal frustration and tension that we see exploding all across the world, including uh, uh, the, the George Floyd protest of 2020, as you point out. And so, William, how do these uh, inequalities uh, uh, play out in terms of, you know, people's material conditions? and how uh, global capital sort of has a role in that, in a central role, honestly. Absolutely. Well, I had already mentioned going into the pandemic that 1%, 20%, and 80%, but then during the pandemic, these inequalities even accelerated further. Uh, in the United States, just the United States, the ultra-wealthy increased their wealth by nearly a trillion dollars between March and October of 2020. That's just the first six months of the pandemic, while 60 million people um, worked, workers lost their job, poverty, hunger, and homelessness spread. But that's only the story in the United States. Worldwide, billionaires' wealth increased during the pandemic by 27% to $10.2 trillion in the first four months alone of the pandemic. And throughout those two and some odd years of the pandemic, there was price pockets of the rich were lined, price gouging, fraud, racketeering in the United States, but, but also um, worldwide. And you might say, okay, that was the pandemic. But in fact, in the last year, this has intensified. Uh, I finished writing the book in, um, in 2021, in early 2021. It took over a year, of course, to, to get out. But um, in 2022, Oxfam, which I cited in, in, in the book, Oxfam is a development agency based in the, in the UK, released its new report. And this report, I want to read a, a two paragraphs, says that new billionaires were minted every 26 hours as inequality contributes to the death of one person every four seconds. The world's 10 richest men more than doubled their fortunes from $700 billion to $1.5 trillion at the rate of $15,000 per second or $1.3 billion a day during the first two years of a pandemic that has seen the income of 99% of humanity fall and over 160 million more people forced into desperate poverty. And then it, con- it asks, oh, I'll conclude with this, if these 10 men were to lose 99.999 percent of their wealth tomorrow, 
they would still be richer than 99% of the people on the planet. They now have six times more wealth than the poorest 3.1 billion people. So we have this global oligarchy, which is entirely, uh, completely out of control. And as they accumulate this massive wealth, 2 billion people on the planet live in food insecurity. Another 1.3 billion people suffer from malnutrition and do not know where their next meal is coming. The, again, the wages of 90, the, the income of 99% of the people on the planet have dropped in the last few years. So we have this unprecedented colonization. Now, I want to just conclude this the question by going back to digitalization. Uh, you know, in a totally different system, people-centered, in which social need trumps private profit, all of these technologies could resolve many of humanity's um problems. But what this tech, what these technologies are doing, I've mentioned some of it, but I want to add something else here. It, what, what the transnational capitalist class wants to do is maximize profit. And you maximize profit by minimizing the cost of labor. And so you replace workers by uh, technology. And that's been going on for quite a number of decades, you know, automation and the replacement of workers by technology. But these new technologies, which, again, we haven't discussed, but I'm assuming, you know, artificial intelligence, autonomously driven air, land and sea uh, vehicles, the Internet of Things, biotechnology, nanotechnology, uh, 5G. I mean, uh, listeners are familiar with all of these new um, technologies, but what they allow the capitalist class to do is to accelerate the replacements of human labor by these different technologies, thereby aggravating all of the conditions of the social crisis for humanity and, and the crisis of the system itself. But it also allows, as I was mentioning previously, work to be restructured in such a way so that there's incredibly enhanced control of the working population. Sean, if you allow me to read one other quote, because I, this quote is actually after I finished the book, because it came out afterwards, but when I read it, I was shaking, you know, with the implications here. Of, so 40% of people in the United States went to homework during the pandemic, and it's estimated that 20% of all homework will be permanent, but it's not just that. It's that now the new technologies allow this type of surveillance of people working in front of computers, which are nightmares. Allow me, I know we have a short interview, but this is so shocking. Allow me to quote from this article that I could not get in the book because it came out after the book. And it says that both the scope and the scale of corporate surveillance have ballooned in the wake of the pandemic. Um, the study by the European Commission found that global demand for employee spying software more than doubled between 2019 and 2020. Within weeks of the first lockdown in March 2020, search queries for monitoring tools rose more than 18-fold. Surveillance software makes sales, made sales jumps. At, at Times Doctor, which records videos of users' screens or periodically snaps photos to ensure they are at their computer, they suddenly trebled in April 2020 compared with the previous year. Those at desk time, which tracks time spent on tasks, quadrupled. And then it goes on to say that with this new technology, employers can snap a photo of workers at any time. They can monitor their blood pressure. There's new facial recognition, which you cannot control as the worker if you're working online for a corporation. Uh, and it, and let me read this. Last year, Fuji, a Japanese technology group, unveiled AI, AI software which promises to gauge employees' concentration based on their facial expression. And it goes on and on. So you have these nightmare new systems, you know, based on this technology of how you um, control how you can control the labor force. And these same technologies are being applied, of course, to to um, to Amazon warehouses and so forth and, and so on.
Definitely. And I also wanted to say in our last couple of minutes, William, I wanted folks to know that you've got another book uh, coming out soon entitled Can Global Capitalism Endure, where you get into a number of things, including a, a, a postscript entitled Ukraine and the Crisis of Global Capitalism, which I think is is very important. And another uh, piece that I appreciate about uh, the global civil war is how you note how it's going to take an organized uh, pressure, a movement really from below to really overcome all of these dynamics that, as I put it, you know, will only continue to to push humanity into oblivion. And so in in truth, when we talk about what's going to really improve people's conditions, uh, not just in the U.S. and the West, but all over the world, it's not going to be a reform campaign. It's going to have to be the complete overturning of this capitalist system whose contradictions are at the root of so many of these issues. But we're going to leave it there for today, right now. Now here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., I want to thank William I. Robinson so much for joining us today. Encourage people to pick up his new book, Global Civil War, Capitalism Post-Pandemic. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Wednesday, July 6th, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary. Here in Washington, D.C., you can do that by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320 at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time. But you can also listen to our shows at SputnikNews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in By Any Means Necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.com. Mave, that's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen to us live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday. And we're streaming live for your viewing pleasure right now on Rumble. Rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today. You can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, at the top of the hour today, Eric Holder Jr. reportedly has been convicted of first degree murder in the killing of Los Angeles rapper Nipsey Hussle. Uh, this came down today where they delivered this uh, guilty verdict in Eric R. Holder Jr.'s trial around the killing of Hussle that happened at his store back in March 31st of 2019, where he shot the 33 year old 
quote-unquote Nipsey Hussle at least 10 times, uh, ultimately killing him. Uh, Rest in peace, Nipsey Hussle. The marathon continues. Also want to give a birthday shout-out to actress Della Reese, who is 91 years old today. She was born on this day in Detroit, Michigan in 1931. So big birthday shout-out to Della Reese who we enjoyed uh, uh, in uh, Harlem Nights and so many other uh, fine films and television shows. But be that as it may, we're happy to be joined for the hour today by Esther Rivera, artist, author, independent journalist, and host of producer of On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital, which you can listen to both as a podcast and on Pacifica Radio. Esther, thanks so much for joining us. Always happy to join you and you and Jackie. Absolutely. We're always glad to have you, Esther. And, you know, Esther, I wanted to begin today by talking about the inevitable political fallout from the refusal of the Democratic Party to really fight for these life and death issues that plague the elements of U.S. society that this party claims is their base and who fully expects to continue to vote for them despite accomplishing nothing for them. And I was looking at this piece in uh, uh, CNN politics that was talking about, about how Democrats are starting to wonder out loud about the capability of the Biden administration, particularly in moments of urgency, uh, not the least of which I think is exemplified by uh, the Roe v. Wade decision, which, uh, you know, put abortion rights, you know, at serious risk here in the United States and uh, uh, women's liberation and health and all these sorts of things and reproductive justice. When we talk about it, there was one uh, unnamed member of Congress that CNN quoted uh, describing the the Democrats as, quote, rudderless, aimless and hopeless. And even some of the more uh, prominent advocates uh, for the Democrats, like uh, actress Deborah Messing of Will and Grace fame, who was recently uh, on a call with the White House following the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade. And, you know, according to this piece in The Hill, I mean, she was saying that, you know, like, basically, what's the point of you all asking me to do anything or to go for bat for these issues and that there doesn't seem to be a point in voting and all these sorts of things. And I can't help but think about this one chant that uh, uh, I saw, um, I saw a video of it uh, following the Supreme Court decision where um, they were saying uh, voting blue is not enough. Democrats, we call your bluff. And so not only is I think the rank and file American becoming increasingly frustrated uh, uh, with the Democrats and their impotency. I'm not sure what else we could how you could really uh, uh, describe them. And I, I feel like, and we've been saying this on the show really for some time that, you know, this, this same old, you know, vote blue, no matter who trick bag that they've been putting us in for years, years before that was even a popular phrase that they came up with is just wearing thin and doesn't have the same impact as it once had. But now also we're seeing Democrats themselves sort of express some of these uh, uh, same frustrations. And as we head uh, ever swiftly towards uh, the midterms in the United States 
and towards another um, uh, presidential election in 2024, it's hard to feel, Esther, like the Democrats as an institution are really going to start to uh, uh, feel the heat, if you will, of their inaction. But of course, if that happens and they face this uh, electoral defeat, I tend to feel like they'll make it to where it's everybody else's fault but their own. But I'm curious your thoughts on this. Yes, that's exactly what they'll do. They'll make it so that it is everyone else's fault. But we've seen this kind of slow motion car wreck even before Biden was inaugurated. You know, we saw that for the second time they intentionally trounced the the candidacy of Bernie Sanders, you know, who despite his faults, did present the most forward-looking, progressive uh, platform. You know, he weak on foreign policy and is an imperialist. But in terms of domestic priorities that most Democratic voters uh, care about, he was putting forward the most uh, forward uh, platform. So we saw that before Biden was just ushered into the presidency, you know, by Obama by the rest of the Democratic Party establishment that made sure Bernie Sanders once again would be screwed over. We know that uh, this slow motion car wreck was put into place. Since then, all the campaign promises or either progressive platforms put forward by the liberal wing of the party, like the squad, Pramila Jayapal and Bernie, uh, they They've been unsuccessful. They've been blocked by, you know, they want to blame Joe Manchin and, and you know, Kirsten Cinema, But, you know, they have not passed these, you know, basic things that people cared about. You know, despite them, these uh, pieces of legislation being so watered down, like uh, uh, the George Floyd, you know, act around uh, police brutality and, you know, concerning how the police interact with those of us who pay their salaries, the, the whole Build Back Better package, which was kind of whittled down and separated out and carved up to be a uh, another boon for corporations and uh, maybe uh, you know construction entities to do some infrastructure, uh, private partner, private public partnerships, and that sort of thing. But we know that that won't even I don't think uh, address the water crisis in Flint. You know, uh, the last time I spoke to people in Jackson, Mississippi, who were suffering under a similar water crisis, they said the Mississippi governor wasn't going to uh, allocate those infrastructure funds to aid the predominantly black or, you know, uh, and poor uh, working people of Jackson, Mississippi. So, so many things that people wanted in that package around health care, you know, drugs, Drug prices, you know, free college, free community college, um, a universal pre-K, um, the child tax credit, you know, which they, they had the nerve to let expire. So many things uh, leading up to this point have been such a disappointment from this administration. Of course, you know, DACA, the uh, or the issue of, um, of immigration and, you know, making the undocumented giving them a path to citizenship, you know, which concerns so much of the population. You know, so before this year, these things have been failures. And then we come to this point and you have this rogue right-wing Supreme Court that, uh, you know, and we, we could talk about, you know, how we got here, you know, 
uh, in terms of, uh, you know, Trump coming in and uh, appointing these three justices. But the, the fact is that they have made a series of decisions that are turning back the clock, not only on women's reproductive health, the uh, rights of all citizens when they deal with the police, the rights to uh, live in a society that people cannot just carry guns around in public and, you know, this wild, 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 wild west <laughs> kind of scenario. So um, I, I think that, you know, you used the word trick bag, you know, earlier. And I think that that's the, the, the situation, because on the one hand, uh, the Democrats have been increasingly uh, alienated from the base and from the, the interaction you described with the actress Deborah Messing. They're even alienating the, the their one percent in their party, people who uh, they turn to for big donations and who they turn to to help them defeat Trump. Um, you know, giving out all these promises that Biden almost told us that he wasn't going to fulfill. He said nothing would fundamentally change. So that's the trick bag too that that uh, people were. Uh, asked to trust one more time, just one more time, and help us defeat Trump uh, to make a difference. And then they, we see no difference. We see no difference at all. As a matter of fact, things are worse because we now we we may we may have more so-called civil liberties. You know that veneer of the kind of intersectional imperialism that this administration and all administrations want to foster. Not so much the Trump one, but. Uh, all Democratic administrations want to foster. But when it comes to, in a, you know, the imperialist nature of this project, that's gotten worse because we see now they don't mind ushering us right up to the door of World War III. They don't mind us being in bed with neo-Nazis in Ukraine. They don't mind making the kinds of financial decisions and policy decisions that impacts all of us who are working people and don't have the money to live in the gated community and to, you know, ride out high gas prices and high food prices. You know, you know, a bag of black eyed peas recently cost me like five dollars. You know, so uh, you know, that, the trick bag is that is like you said, but it's also uh, the hypocrisy just coming home to roost. They can't. Uh, pretend to care about us at home while uh, committing the same the same imperialist project abroad. And, you know, the wild thing about this particular story about, you know, Deborah Messing and, and the the uh, entertainment uh, uh, industrial complex political elite, I guess, uh, being on this Zoom call uh, with the White House is the fact that they even have a Zoom call with the White House. Esther, I just think it's wild that, I mean, the U.S. media reported this story as if it's completely normal, as if, as if having celebrities and the one percent uh, having a, a direct line to the White House in a country in which the people have been demanding these things of the White House for uh, since Biden was elected, since before Biden was elected. No one listens to the people. 
But then we're, we're supposed to be upset that Deborah Messing is upset. <laughs> I mean, I I guess I, I'm feeling like, well, better late than never. Never, you know, Deborah, you you get what we've been saying all along. But but I also see like just kind of the ridiculousness that. This is even a story that that the celebrities who pushed, uh, uh, you know, by you have to vote for Biden to get rid of Trump and and ostracized uh, leftist voters and and did all the gaslighting are basically realizing that we were right. <laughs> Esther, we were right. And now what do they get in response for, uh, you know, all of their efforts to elect this man? More talking points. Right. And I think that the attention to Deborah Messing kind of connects to something you and I've discussed in the past, which is how the uh, Roe v. Wade issue, the abortion issue, has a has a uh, more direct connection in terms of uh, white women in the society and the fact that they are getting more attention and more uh, high-profile coverage in terms of their uh, outrage, righteous outrage about this. And the fact that this human rights issue, you know, affects uh, uh, this other population, you know, in, in addition to, you know, black women, other women of color, certainly uh, the black men uh, primarily who are, you know, increasingly killed in the streets by police. So this movement, if you want to, you know, see it kind of in comparison to the Black Lives Matter movement, it touches a segment of the population that definitely has the ear, you know, definitely has the ear of more politicians and people in power uh, than, you know, all our cries out in the streets, you know, for the in recent years around police violence. I just see that as one point, you know. And the fact that they made it a story, you know, these corporate media outlets, whenever they can talk about celebrities and actors and actresses or musicians or whatever, they definitely will uh, put that in the story because they see that as getting more clicks and they see the, the U.S. population, large parts of it being very celebrity obsessed. <laughs> so... You know, you know, maybe that's a way of getting the article more attention. But I think that for a lot of us, it's just more of a turnoff. It's just, it just shows how, you know, people out here in the streets, they don't have that type of audience. You know, I don't know if, you know, you know, real movement leaders in terms of black lives, in terms of, you know, reproductive health, in terms of, you know, health care, you know, education. I don't know if these people are getting audiences, you know, with the White House. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. That's the thing. And the truth is, is that, you know, the rank and file person, the masses of people like we have no, you know, they have no access to uh, the people who they uh, elect to lead them, which means it can be difficult uh, uh, despite, you know, folks claims to want to, you know, push uh, the Biden administration left to hold their feet to the fire. 
None of that has happened left yet. Uh, it's not going to happen. It never was going to. I maintain that, you know, people who say that they, they're either like knowingly lying or they're just painfully naive. And and either way, I think it's just one more way to fall into this uh, a same kind of trap. And so what I think people are also realizing, particularly following this uh, this uh, Supreme Court decision around Roe v. Wade, is that to really uh, uh, affect the kind of change and to really, you you know, make these people hear you. I mean, you have to really organize that kind of uh, pressure from below. It's definitely not a, a situation where you can rely on, you know, their moral compass or the goodness of their heart to do these things for you, because <laughs> to put it lightly, that's just simply not how they operate. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Esther Averam. Uh, shout out to the by any means necessary chat. Uh, Nawadi says, yeah, we shouldn't say Dems don't know how to fight. They fight those to their left just fine. And that's absolutely true. The Democrats never uh, seem to miss an opportunity to punch left, even within their own party. They are always happy to kowtow and play footsie with the right wing of their own party, you know, which, by the way, is much larger than Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. They're just the most visible in this moment, but they represent a considerable element within the leadership of that party. And we already know about just this, frankly, strange, almost fetishization of so-called bipartisanship with the Republican Party that has no interest in that whatsoever. And so it's it's a baffling thing that they'll do that, but we'll turn around and attack uh, the folks we call progressives within the Democrats, who I think in reality are like the true liberals in, in this uh, uh, equation. And without question, um, um, the, the Democrats are always attacking any real left wing or progressive movement or organization that is also trying to make inroads. I mean, we've seen this recently when uh, uh, Democrats uh, blocked green, the Green Party from uh, getting ballot access in uh, North Carolina. I'm going to read um, uh, a paragraph or two here from uh, an article from the, the 1st of July uh, from the Carolina Journal. It says, quote, the North Carolina Green Party had its petition to be recognized as an official party in state elections denied in a 3-2 party line vote at the NC State Board of Elections on June 30th. But the NCGP is crying foul, alleging the Elias Law Group, a powerful firm used by national Democrats, which which was also successful in getting North Carolina's election maps thrown out, used lying, bullying and harassment to influence the decision. 
And, you know, if that sounds familiar, that's because not that long ago, Democrats pulled the exact same thing in Pennsylvania. I believe this was back in 2020. And so here we have the Democratic Party, this this the the, the liberal wing of uh, the ruling class just out and out attacking. Matter of fact, before I even get to that, this is the same party and political element that is talking about, you know, how Trump and the Republicans. Republicans are attacking democracy, but they're literally blocking these, uh, you know, a progressive organization like the Green Party from getting ballot access, which is not easy, mind you. Uh, I've, I've talked on the uh, show before about uh, the realities of uh, ballot access in the United States. I mean, you got 50 different states. I mean, it's basically like 50 different processes and uh, that, that you have to go through. And depending on the money you have and the amount of uh, people that you have on the ground to really help with that is going to really uh, uh, determine how that looks. And the fact that any alternative party is able to get on the ballot is, is, is a minor miracle to me. But I think this is a prime example of what we're talking about here, uh, Esther, in the sense that not only do we continue to see a refusal for uh, the Democrats to fight for these things, even things they claim to care about. They claim to care about abortion rights. They claim to care about the climate. They claim to care about policing issues and all of that. And the only answer to police issues they can come up with, at least from Joe Biden, is to give them more money. So not only are they refusing to fight for these very popular things amongst the people that Democrats consider their base, they also actively attack um, any uh, insurgent progressive force that they see as a threat. And so for me, it highlights the fundamentally right wing nature of the Democrats as a party. And this is why I always tell people that when you talk about Democrats and Republicans, you're not talking about a left wing party and a right wing party. You're talking about a far right ruling class party in the Republicans and a center right uh, ruling class party in the Democrats. And therefore, anything that's really to the left uh, has to then be uh, a target of attack. But but how are you seeing this, uh, Esther? <laughs> Absolutely. Look, you know, it, 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 it's more hypocrisy, like we were talking about earlier, and how they are actively working against the few candidates that get through this, you know, hurdle process who are trying to propose something progressive for the country. The Democratic Party is actively working against people within their own party, like you mentioned, working against third parties for sure. And, you know, we, we saw this even in the last election in terms of the Green Party. And the uh, after they uh, had this uh, majority in the House, how they uh, attempted to, as part of the voting rights legislation that didn't go through, to put in a provisions that would make it harder for third parties to raise money, to uh, just be viable and compete in elections. So this attack on third parties is just part of the overall program of the Democratic Party. And I think it's important to remember also, as you, as you said, that there are people within their own party. So in addition to this uh, playing playing around with this balloting process in North Carolina, you know, think about how hard the Democratic establishment uh, went after uh, Nina Turner, who was Bernie Sanders' chair, 
when she tried to, you know, once again compete for a seat in Congress from Ohio. You know how uh, the in the recent uh, test uh, contest in Texas, young woman uh, competing against Cuellar, who is an anti-abortion, um, you know, candidate. He is he is uh, anti-abortion, yet. They and and they went all out to try to uh, have him defeat his his opponent, more progressive, and now and then they want to a few weeks later want to say, oh, but we we are for abortion rights, while you are supporting actively an anti-abortion candidate, right? So they just get caught in all these different contradictions that just have something to do with a base lack of integrity around what you say you stand for. You know, I think it's it's super destructive. They they've they've allowed APAC to come into their primary system and and pump millions of dollars into these uh, any candidate who wants to stand up for the Palestinian people and against the apartheid state of Israel. They uh, are allowing them to dictate so much of what is happening in the party, and they're alienating so much of the base alienating a whole new generation of young people who openly call themselves socialists and believe in socialism. And they're showing time and time again, this new generation, that the Democratic Party is not going to be any kind of vehicle for change. So they're just kind of digging their own grave. And, you know, it's the same thing. There's mixed metaphors, but the same, you know, slow motion car crash. And I mean, this is more than a slow motion car crash. This car crash has been going on for decades and decades. This argument that we keep having about the ineffectualness, the spinelessness of the Democratic Party. And and I always point back to W.E.B. Du Bois and his essay that was published in The Nation magazine, Why I Won't Vote, in 1956. And the very last paragraph, he says, stop yelling about a democracy we do not have. Democracy is dead in the United States, yet there's still nothing to replace real democracy. Drop the trains then that bind our brains. Drive the money changers from the seats of the cabinet and the halls of Congress. Call back some faint spirit of, well, terribly misplaced Jefferson and Lincoln when we once can, when we again can hold a fair election on real issues, let's vote. And not until then is this possible. Then democracy in America is impossible. And and just the fact that he ended the essay with the question that is it possible to have a fair election in a country in which he pointed out then that the system as it exists denies the existence of third parties and their abilities to enter, to engage in the political process. It was true in 1956. We see the Democratic Party still doing it now. I mean, he asked the question then, is it possible to have a fair election? I think the question has been soundly answered over and over again, Esther, that we've never really had a fair election in this country because we've never really had the opportunity to vote for all of the political choices that we could have had, partially because of the actions of the Democratic Party. Yeah, and you notice that for all their, you know, neo-fascist direction, 
we know that the Republican Party, it can be said that in the last election in 2016, the reason why Trump was able to sail in is because they didn't put their things, their thumb on the scale during the primary season. And so, you know, he was able to just uh, keep winning primary after primary. They didn't try to, to uh, do these same types of tricks that you see happening in, in North Carolina right now. And uh, they continue to allow the far right of their party to compete. And so we have Marjorie Taylor Greene, we have Matt Gates, we have, you know, Lauren Boebert, we have all these uh, far right uh, members of Congress who I wouldn't say that they're the stars of the Congress, but they, they certainly get a lot of the 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 ink in in right wing media. And they are seen by some people as the ones who will speak truth to power. and. With the Democrats in there just fumbling and bumbling and 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 intentional uh, mismanagement, they are allowing very often the far right to articulate and be active on issues that the that they won't allow their left to be articulate on, right? So uh, I'm not trying to take away agency from the, their liberal wing, but when you look at the votes for on Ukraine, for example, you have a lot of Republicans in the House who voted against the money to go to Ukraine. But you have all the Democrats lining up for it, you know, out of this, what, fealty to the party, to the president's agenda. We can't we have to be in, in unison. And so, you know, what happened to the people who would speak out? You know, there weren't many. Maybe it was just Barbara Lee. Um, in the run-up to the Iraq invasion or the invasion of Afghanistan. But there were voices there, you know, that maybe the left could could look to and say, see, there's there's the system working. You know, maybe, maybe we didn't get the outcome we wanted, but there was a voice in Congress speaking up for us. Now, look, look what they've done. They've created a situation where these far-right Republicans are often— speaking in a populist tone. We know that it's not populist for everybody, but they they are able to speak that language that the Democratic Party doesn't even allow their uh, liberal base to voice, and they've totally shut out the left. So while they uh, try to hold back this tie with these types of machinations like in, in North Carolina, all they're doing is setting the stage for a strong opposition, uh, third-party wave who just overwhelmed them at some point. And uh, what, what's going to happen is, uh, you know, there, there will be splits in the future. There will be splits. And, and it just determines whether uh, how many, which of these corporate parties can hold more of their base. And right now, you know, based on the that, you know, celebrity Zoom and these kinds of machinations in North Carolina, you can see that they are alienating more and more of people, more and more people who wanted to give the Democratic Party one more chance. Yeah, definitely. And uh, shout out to two F's in the by any means necessary chat that uh, said in Europe or the Dems would be a far right party. You know, I, I, I'm I actually just I don't think that 
Most people in the United States actually recognize just how right wing the politics in this country are. I think a lot of people in the U.S. still have this um, notion that, uh, you know, that this is basically like a liberal forward thinking country that, you know, has its problems. But that is basically good and, you know, uh, whatever, whatever and uh, whatever. But in truth is, this is a pretty white wing country. and It's been trending more and more right as uh, the year have gone by. And a part of that has been the Democrats uh, capitulating uh, to the right and moving to the right while uh, uh, punching left out of, uh, you know, an effort to keep up with Republicans and to try to appeal to these uh, right wing voters and and things like that, which at least here in recent years, most certainly just just straight up does not work. And, uh, you know, not that long ago, we were talking on the show about how Democrats in Maryland actually withdrew their own uh, transgender health care bill, not because they were under pressure from Republicans, not because, you know, it was some uh, process where it got vetoed or thrown out. No, they pulled it themselves because they wanted to appeal to right-wing voters in some of uh, the quote-unquote purple counties in in Maryland. You know what I mean? And so it, it's that kind of thinking that uh, uh, the Democrats are just mired in, that the, the establishment in the mainstream of that party is just soaked through with that kind of mess and that kind of nonsense, and it has a real flesh and blood on the ground impact on the uh, uh, human beings that have to suffer the brunt of this. And that's the, the, the whole thing, Jackie. And see, when we talk about the propaganda of this country and how incessant and uh, aggressive it is, not only does it give you a poor grasp of history and a short historical memory, it fundamentally skews how you even see or situate this country on the world stage and how you see yourself in it. Mm-hmm. Because the thing about this imperial hubris, this uh, uh, American exceptionalism, is at root, it's the idea that um, the, that the universe rotates around the United States. And everything else that happens around the world is secondary uh, to what's happening here. Secondary at best. That works just straight up not important. You know what I mean? And so this this is, I think, why it's so important and why we uh, uh, really stress political education here on by any means necessary because it's so important that we have a sort of clear and sober-minded analysis of what kind of country this is and just what that means because I think having that clarity uh, better prepares us for, you know, making a new society completely unlike the one we have now. Yeah, absolutely true. I mean, when we look at just the way this country engages uh, around the world and we examine, you know, these undemocratic systems that these officials in this government continues to tell us that that it's fighting against. When we really look at at, you know, countries like Ukraine, that the U.S. is is waging this evil proxy war against Russia in. And we're seeing that the Ukrainian government is doing and has been doing these horrific fascist, undemocratic things. And we see that the United States is backing them. Well, then it ought to question, it ought to cause us to question, well, wait, if the U.S. is backing a fascist government in Ukraine, then what 
what is the U.S. doing? Why would they do that? And then when you start to look at the way that the U.S. suppresses free speech here, particularly from the left, the way the U.S. oppresses uh, protest, uh, criminalizes protest, all of the bills that have been passed across the country criminalizing protest, the way the Supreme Court has just handed down these decisions that take away rights people thought they had under the Constitution, and the Democratic Party that's supposed to be better than the Republicans. They're supposed to be the defenders of the people. They do nothing absolutely nothing that should indicate to people that the problem is not with the rest of the world. The problem is this country and this system and that we've all been sold this terrible imperialist lie. And hopefully that spurs people to fight it from the inside, Sean. Yeah, definitely. Another thing I wanted to note about this, um, this issue of, uh, you know, like like the political spectrum in the U.S. And, and, and sort of comparing it to other places. And, and I mentioned this on the show before, and it bears repeating. Like what we consider a progressive platform in the United States, like a Bernie Sanders type platform, is pretty par for the course in, in places like Europe and things like that. And I think that's actually an example of how far right the politics are in the United States to where someone like Bernie Sanders come along and he's treated like he's Mao Zedong or something, when in reality, these are just like some very basic things that would obviously be very beneficial to a lot of people. So even that had to be a sabotage. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Stoic and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Esther Averam is here. And we have a caller on the line here. Mo, tell us what's on your mind. Yeah, I'm, I guess it's kind of fitting that I followed uh, your remarks, Sean. And uh, I'm uh, not only, I have to admit, not only am I a listener of your show, but I listen to Esther's show religiously on Fridays at 10 o'clock. And uh the point that I wanted to make, that, that just the sheer insanity of it all, I, what brings to mind is Reverend Barber, who's supposed to be, quote-unquote, a disciple of Dr. King and the uh, uh, March for, or the Poor People's March. And I know that uh, Jackie was quite, uh, uh, she had a, a, a very important presence down there that March. And simply, here's a, a gentleman that uh, supposedly is representing that the, the next phase of Dr. King for, for whatever that is. But he turns around and supports the war in Ukraine and, and, and fails to make the connection, uh, or simple connection, militarism, materialism, and racism. And all of that is an extension of, of Dr. King as well. And I, I'm just... I'm just appalled by all different dimensions of of our leadership. So I, I'm just uh, I just listen to you guys 
I'll follow if, if you guys decided to do whatever, I will follow you. But it's just simply absurd to just see the just the level of inadequacy of what could be considered leadership. So I'll stop there and let you guys respond. And thanks for taking my call. Well, thank you, Mo. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. First of all, I want to congratulate you for having great taste. You listen to us and uh, on the ground with uh, Esther Averum. So, I mean, you know, that that seems like a pretty good uh, uh, media diet. But, you know, in the question of uh, uh, Dr. Barber and the People's Campaign, I mean, I also disagree with Dr. Barber's stance on the war in Ukraine. Uh, I, I don't know an anti-imperialist who, who didn't disagree with it. But, you know, I was also down at the uh, uh, the Poor People's Campaign, this, um, this, this mass gathering that they had of a poor and working people. And who was there? Who was present at this demonstration, at this rally? Uh, they were uh, labor unions, big and small. There were homeless organizations. There were, you know, revolutionary organizations, anti-war uh, uh, organizations. And I think that if you take a look, I mean, there were people who were there who were very clear about the connection between the material conditions of poor working and oppressed people in the United States and the uh, imperialist war machine. But what I think we also have to remember is that none of us are exempt from this imperialist propaganda. Indeed, many of us, if not all of us, at some point may have had a, a, a liberal or otherwise mainstream political outlook on war and things like that. I mean, I can speak for myself. I know I did. I voted for Barack Obama when he was first president. You know, I was a student at, at FAMU, and I remember we had a march from the campus to, uh, I think that was the courthouse in downtown Tallahassee, which is not that far from uh, a campus. And, and I remember I was so, I felt so good about like, you know, checking off that box for Obama. I, I felt like I wanted to do it twice. And then I remember looking down the rest of the ballot and having no clue who like the rest of these people were in like these local races and stuff like that. So that was a, a lesson learned in, uh, uh, you know, voter literacy and things like that. But the, the deeper point is, and I think this is an important point that the uh, Poor People's Campaign themselves have raised and really driven home. This number of 140 million people living at or below the poverty level, right? And so when we talk about carrying through a systemic change in the United States, actually overturning uh, the capitalist system, we're going to need either a majority or a decisive minority of that class element on our side. Now, what we have to recognize when we talk about organizing is that when we go into these spaces, when we go into these communities, everybody's not going to have a revolutionary socialist, anti-capitalist, uh, uh, so on and so forth. Their politics are not going to square 100 percent with ours. But that can't be the criteria through which uh, uh, we decide whether or not to uh, work with people. I mean, I think it was King himself that said uh, a leader is a molder of consensus. And so when we talk about doing coalition work and we talk about unity, we have to be clear on what that means. Raul Castro said once that unity does not exclude honest discrepancy. 
So in other words, being united does not mean agreeing on every single solitary issue that's going to come up. It means having a firm rooting and a strong enough relationship to where we can emphasize those places where we agree and then work on those places while we disagree. And speaking for myself personally, I don't see that as a reason to throw a whole movement away or, or toss aside someone as leadership. If we're talking about being comrades in this struggle, then that also means struggling with each other on these different issues. So along with the revolutionary optimism that we advocate and promote so much on this show, I also want to encourage people to have a kind of revolutionary patience and understanding that these are some of the contradictions and dynamics that we are going to continue to uh, uh, run into. This isn't going to be the last time that somebody has a bad line on imperialism or capitalism or, or what have you. The question as organizers is how can we struggle with each other to reconcile these contradictions, to strengthen the movement, build it, and to keep it moving forward towards victory? But uh, Jackie Lukeman, curious your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely agree. And that's why rather than staying away, I did go because, yeah, that, the, you know, Reverend Barber's stance on Ukraine, extremely troubling. But that does not mean that the poor people's campaign is not important. It absolutely is. It is a campaign to raise the issue of poverty and working class issues uh, that is never talked about in this country by any of the politicians, particularly, once again, since we're talking about the disappointment of the Democrats, particularly among them. So I was glad to use the opportunity to raise that contradiction. You know, we can have a movement for the poor, but it's difficult to do that when you're also supporting $54 billion that this government is sending to Ukraine for war. So what do you do with that? And you engage in conversation with people, but that does not mean that all this campaign is just... No, Reverend Barber's particular uh, comments are his own. And perhaps they don't reflect it. From the people I talked to, they didn't reflect a lot of the people that at least I talked to that day who were very concerned, that didn't even realize that that much money at the time and at the time, uh, Esther, of the Poor People's uh, Campaign Rally, at the time that amount was $54 billion. Now it's 55, close to $56 billion for war and not a dime of that for the poor. And using that opportunity to talk to working class people, those uh, uh, that percentage the representative of that 140 million working class and poor people, that is what organizing is, even when you have disagreements and there are uh, 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 issues with particular stances but that's that is seizing upon the moment to organize and deepen uh, solidarity further, Esther. Yeah, absolutely. I attended a press conference held by uh, Black Alliance for Peace, as, as well as the uh, uh, Poor People's Army out of uh, Philadelphia, Philadelphia, and you know they were making some of these same points and just talking about why they could not have unity. I was trying to raise the issue of a popular front. I was very excited about the progress that people had made in France and made in Chile and made in other places where the left has uh, had so many factions and so many challenges coming together. And they saw that by coming together, they could achieve more, you know, and, and I think that 
looking at those examples, I have been thinking about the same thing here. I mean, I know there that we it's very difficult for those of us on the true left to to uh, you know stomach you know people kind of uh, biting you know uh, tolerating you know these imperialist con- you know actions by our government um, or seeming to um, you know be down with them or you know not be critical of them but you know if we like Sean said want to build a movement of of working people in this country, uh, we are going to have to engage in political education. We're going to have to, um, and, and, and the thing is, you know, it's what we were talking about earlier. By their actions, the Democrats kind of teach people themselves, you know. They're, they're engaging in, you know, political education to basically defeat themselves. Because as time goes by, uh, people see uh, what the system has to offer, what it doesn't ha- doesn't have to offer, you know, currently, and how it is always um, making these undemocratic decisions, sending our money overseas, funding wars, funding occupation, funding the overthrow of governments, you know, uh, making people working and poor people all over the world miserable, uh, you know, uh, opposing, you know, true human rights campaigns like women in Haiti, you know, fighting to make a, a, a not even a decent wage, but just a slightly better wage. And our, we have our hands in that, opposing them. So I think that people, it's, it's something like I, I had a conversation with a uh, Black Lives Matter organizer uh, also not that long ago, and he went through the whole process of, of trying to get people to support different uh, legislation in Maryland, you know, and some of it was successful. They were able to get, you know, um, some of these pieces uh, passed in the state legislature, but they also were thwarted by many m- corporate Democrats in, in the Maryland state legislature, right? But at the end, he just said that he thought it was valuable for his cadre of people to go through that process to see how the system was able to be successful and how the system failed them. And so that that we can move on, we can move on to create more revolutionary uh, structures to understand how we, we can, the ways that we can make the system work for us right now, whether it's reforms, but also build our power to oppose and build the kind of world and system that we want to see. And so I think it's a real discussion that the left is happening right, having right now, including the black left. But I hope that it, it leads people to create more working together as opposed to more factionalism. Definitely. And, you know, I think some of us should realize, <clears throat> and I'm saying this in the most general sense, I'm not directing this at anyone. Some of us need to realize that you can be right and still be wrong. There's this tendency uh, amongst the left elements in the United States that we would rather be right, quote unquote, than to actually win. And we feel content in being sufficiently radical or having the most precise analysis, even if having that actually harms our organizing efforts. You know, I I was just thinking about something that happened a few years ago here in D.C. Al Sharpton called some big march because Al Sharpton, I think in reality, is probably the only 
black leader of national stature who can actually get thousands of black people to come and be at one place in one time. Not a lot of people can do that anymore. Jesse can't do it anymore. Farrah Khan can't do it anymore. Right. And so there was this group of organizers here locally that were like, well, we don't really bang with um, uh, Al Sharpton for X, Y, Z reasons. And I'm not even saying their reasons or their criticisms were incorrect, but they opted to basically have like a little like party thing like by themselves where, you know, they can feel good about having the right politics or the right analysis and things like that. But they're doing that away from thousands of black people that were in the streets here in D.C. that they could have come and talked to directly. And I feel like I see that all the time. People think that it is radical or revolutionary to be separate from the masses of people because you disagree with some of the politics. And I can I remember back during the day uh, I've talked several times about the day that um, Joe Biden was elected and people were popping champagne and doing the electric slide and all of that. And so, yeah, we can roll our eyes at it. But there were also people that were out there that had a, a, a revolutionary message talking about how. All right. That's cool. But, you know, the people need housing. The people need fair wages and all of that. And it was getting a, a great response because there were people who may have been relieved that uh, Joe Biden was now president, or I should say they were relieved that Donald Trump was no longer president, which I think is uh, uh, more to the point. But they knew that their fundamental uh, material conditions would not change simply because of that. And they know that something deeper is needed. So, yes, some people just went back to brunch as if they ever stopped. I contend that they ain't never stopped. Not not since Trump, not since nothing. Y'all, y'all didn't. You know, brunch is a religion to some of y'all. You feel me? Y'all was guzzling down the mimosas and, and them uh, eggs Benedict. You feel me? But uh, in reality, there's absolutely nothing uh, productive about separating yourself from from the masses of folks. So, yeah, you can feel good about having just the best analysis or the best politics on this thing. But what have you accomplished if you have allowed that to throw a monkey wrench and what we say is, is our goal in terms of organizing this mass movement. This is the kind of maturity and sober-minded thinking that we're going to have to have, especially in a moment like this, where there is so much on the line and there are literally life and death issues that are all crisscrossing and colliding and converging all at once. Mass shootings, attack on reproductive rights, racist police terror, the climate, the economy. Everything, all of these issues that emerge as contradictions of the capitalist system. When it comes right down to it, my friends, we have to ask ourselves one question. Are we going to light a candle or will we be content to curse the darkness? I know which one I'm going to do. And I hope you'll join me in the people's struggle. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I want to thank Esther Revereum so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.